trying to give this picture of what Christian love looks like in a context where there is tribulation, where there is persecution, there are challenges. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, Natalie Owens-Pike, Yale Divinity School Class of 2023. And in this episode, we have Jennifer Hurt, Gilbert L. Stark Professor of Christian Ethics at Yale Divinity School, and Jerry Wells, Director of the Educational Leadership and Ministry Program at Yale Divinity School. Together, they're discussing Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, which is appointed for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost in year A. Let's listen in. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine, and hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The epistles are such fascinating things because they're written by somebody who is not a witness. They are written by somebody who is interpreting the story of Jesus to these emerging little communities. So I'm as fascinated by the story of Paul as I am about the story that it tells about Jesus and Christian theology. So here's Paul in Corinth. He's already visited a number of these little church communities that he's helped start all out throughout Asia Minor and Greece, etc. And he's starting to think big, like maybe we'll go to Spain. And oh, by the way, if we go to Spain, we could stop along the way and see those nice little churches that I hear about in Rome. So this is a letter that he's actually writing to a group that he hasn't met yet. And he's not responding to things he's heard about of kind of resolving crises or addressing particular problems that have arisen. For the most part, he knows about these emerging communities in Rome, but he's writing to them cold in a certain sense. They know who he is, he knows who they are, but uh, he's going to launch off into kind of this major opus 
with this group that he hadn't even met yet. And he didn't even get there for another three or four years. So I'm, I'm intrigued by what he t- decides to do in this big letter, which many people regard as, you know, kind of the most comprehensive formulation of his theology. So h- how do you see that? Well, absolutely. And there's a lot of pretty he- pretty heavy theology here and many, many books that get written arguing about, well, what just is what what does he really want to say about the Jewish people and how they relate to the law? And But that's already happened when we get to this passage. And we're now turning to the conclusion of the letter. And this would be the place where in, you know, in any of his letters, he would, he would become a little more personal. And yet, as you've said, he can't really get very personal here because he doesn't know the community well. He, he, you know, certainly has some sense of what the perennial challenges of the Christian life will be. So, so we get what one commentator called a staccato series of imperatives here. Um, it just sort of one thing after another, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another. So, it uh, is a lot to absorb, and in part, I think it's challenging to absorb it because it all feels quite familiar, and yet that doesn't make it any less challenging to live it out. This is, in some senses, a kind of partner passage to 1 Corinthians 13, less famous, and maybe because of the staccato effect, but also similar in trying to give this picture of what Christian love looks like in a context where there is tribulation, where there is persecution, there are challenges. There is a, there is a relational element uh, in this letter that's worth noting, is that even while he hasn't met this group yet, he does know that there are two, in a sense, factions in Rome, because the Jews had been expelled and are just now kind of coming back. So the Jewish followers of Jesus are coming back into community with kind of pagan now Christian followers, and there's this mixing of two ethnicities, two different ways of thinking about themselves and the relationship to this story, and my bet is that he's anticipating that they're not necessarily getting along. Right. The conflict is not just with non-Christians who may be persecuting them. The conflict is also internal to the community, which is another theme that we get again and again, of course, in Paul's letters. But this is certainly no exception to that. It's pretty good kind of rules of life. I mean, it provides some very practical guidance on a whole variety of things. It doesn't seem to have a, a real linear analytical development. It's, as you say, this kind of staccato popping out of various different things. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And then follow it up with be of the same mind toward one another. And it's just bam, bam, bam. But you can agree with almost all of it. And yet we get down at the bottom here to this odd outlier. I wonder what you think about this, Jennifer. Uh, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Out of all this love, 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 love stuff, why do we want to heap coals on somebody's head? Well, and of course, it is saying you're you're feeding them, right? You're giving them drinks. So, of course, you, you are doing something good for your enemy. But I do think it feels out of place. It feels somehow manipulative. It feels it feels mean. You're only doing this to, to make them feel bad about themselves somehow. But I think we may misinterpret this passage. If we think back to this place in time, why do people 
have burning coals in their lives, well, they have burning coals because that's what you need to start a fire. And sometimes your fire goes out and you need to bring burning coals from somebody else's fire to your own. And how do you carry those burning coals? Well, you, you carry them on your head because that's how things get carried. Water gets carried, carried on your head. Burning coals get carried on your head. Not just like that, of course, in a pot of some kind. But I, I think we should be thinking, okay, you're you're giving them something that is needed for this ongoing life of theirs. And this is overcoming evil with good in a transformative way, in, in a way that, that reaches out to the person to create relational connection. I care. You, you may be my enemy. I, I recognize we share these basic needs. I will connect with you in that way. I think that is in much more harmony with this overall passage. And the focus is really on how we are to orient ourselves to our to our enemy, not to psychologize what's going on so much with, with them. Paul is always the evangelist, right? I mean, he's always trying to bring people to, to the faith and to ensure that they understand it completely. I wonder if part of this heaping coals of fire on his head is, is a way of helping to turn that enemy into a friend. I mean, is there is there a consequence of feeling that that heat that might turn them from being an enemy to being a friend? I love that. The, the maybe the the image of melting melting the hard heart, right? Yeah. I mean, what really comes to me is one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most memorable lines out, out of a sermon: "Darkness cannot drive out darkness; only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate; only love can do that." And I and I. For me, this passage evokes that. And he's certainly talking about the hardest part of community love, right? Which is how do you act on love with those people who are not just unlike you or people who might dislike you, but who, I mean, he uses the word enemy. And that from the Dr. King context, we understand how bitter that can be and therefore how big the love must be. And that's one of the most powerful things that in the Bible, we don't get skirting around the fact that we actually do have enemies. But it also doesn't leave, doesn't leave us with the, with the hardened boundaries between enemies. We don't use the enemy relationship to shore up our own identity. Right. I guess I have to go back and read Paul again. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our professors for your insights on this scripture. The transcript of this audio and lots more Bible study resources are available at YaleBibleStudy.org. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School and is produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddart, executive producer Helena Martin, and me, your host, Natalie Owens-Pike. Mixing on today's episode and our theme music are by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.